You are listening to the First Baptist Church Martin podcast. For more information on our church, visit fbcmartin.org. Listen, if you got your Bible, let me invite you to open with me to the book of Acts and find chapter 4 this morning, Acts chapter 4. We are in somewhat of a mini-series over the next few weeks. We're talking about our church's mission statement, something that we introduced to our church family a few weeks ago and something that we're drilling down into a little bit deeper because we want this to not just be something you see on the walls around here, we want it to be something that gets into the water. We want it to be uh, who we are because we believe that this is who God has called us to be as a church. And so what is our mission statement? It's that we at First Baptist Martin believe that we exist to glorify God, to bring glory to God by helping every generation believe, connect, grow, and go. So what does that mean? It means, first of all, we are a church that is compelled and is unashamedly committed to proclaiming the gospel. We want people to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world and he died for our sins. He went to the cross, he took the punishment that we deserve because of sin on himself, suffered in our place, died, was buried, but then rose again on the third day. Because of what he did on the cross and because of his resurrection from the dead, he now offers life and salvation to everyone who believes on his name. That when people put their faith and trust in Jesus, not only are their sins forgiven, but they are declared righteous before God, they are justified before God, and they receive the glorious gift of new and everlasting life, and only Jesus can give that. Only Jesus has the power to save. And so we, of course, want people to hear that good news. We want people to hear the news that there is a Savior. We all need a Savior, and there is a Savior. His name is Jesus. But we not only want people to believe that, we also want people to grow in Christ because what we understand is that our mission is not complete just at the point of conversion. Jesus did not call us to go out into the world and make converts. He called us to go into the world and make disciples. Now, a disciple is a fully devoted follower of Christ. It means to be a learner, one who follows the teachings of another. And of course, what we want is to help people understand what Jesus has taught, how Jesus has taught us to live. We want them to understand the truth of His Word. But not only so that they can know what His Word says and what His Word teaches, but then they can put it into practice and they can live it out every day of their life. That they can live as Christ has called us to live, as those who know Him are in a relationship with Him and call ourselves His disciples. And in order for that to happen, we know that certain things need to take place. And one of those things that must happen is that believers must connect with other believers in the fellowship of the church. This is something that's clear from the very beginning as you look in the New Testament, as you study the book of Acts, which gives us the story of the early church. These apostles and these disciples early on, as they took the mission of Jesus and carried it into the world, understood that when people come to faith in Christ, What's important is to get them connected and involved in the local church, to get them involved in fellowship with other believers, believers who are also pursuing a deeper relationship with Jesus Jesus Christ. 
And I want to show you this. Go back, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. We're going to get to chapter 4 in just a moment, I promise. But I want you to go back to chapter 2. We talked about this the week that we introduced our mission statement. We looked at this passage because it talks about the very beginning of the church. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples. And when that happens, Peter stands up in Jerusalem and he begins to proclaim the gospel to all the people gathered there in that city. And the Bible says that as Peter was preaching the gospel, as he was telling them the good news of Jesus Christ and explaining what Christ had done for them on the cross and talked to them about his resurrection from the dead and what that means for all who believe, the Bible says that those who heard him were cut to the heart, which means they came under conviction by the Holy Spirit. God took his word, he took the gospel, brought people under conviction, and they asked Peter, what do we do with this? How are we supposed to respond to this? And Peter says, you need to repent, turn from your sin, put your faith in Jesus Christ, and then you need to be baptized as a public expression, a public confession of your faith in Christ. You shouldn't be ashamed about your relationship with Jesus, but you should let the world know that you've put your trust in him and you're following him. And so you do that through baptism. And the Bible says that on that day, there were thousands who repented of their sins, put their trust in Christ, and were baptized, and now they're a part of the church. But that's not where their story ends. You get to verse 42 in Acts chapter 2, and it says, From that moment they continued steadfastly, talking about these who had just come to faith in Christ, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, in prayers. Fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. All who believed were together. They had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods, divided them among all as anyone had need. And so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And what happens? And the Lord continues to add to the church daily those who are being saved. Because so God's continued to save people and bring them into the church. But it was as a result of what was happening in the life of these believers who already knew Christ and who were beginning to live out their faith in the context of this community. And when you look at Acts chapter 2, a couple of things that stand out. First of all, it talks about how they continued together with one another. Now, I believe that they, at times, got together in places where a large number of them could perhaps congregate. The Bible talks about how they would go to the temple. They would continue to go to the temple. I think they did that for a couple of reasons. I think they went there as a witness to their lost friends who were still caught up in religion and still caught up in Judaism and did not understand that all of Scripture was pointing to this man, Jesus Christ, who had just died for their sins and had just rose from the dead, that Scripture talks about him and is pointing us to him, that the law does not save, the law was never meant to save, but just to show us that we all need a Savior. That Jesus is that Savior. All the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were offered in a, as a foreshadowing of His ultimate sacrifice on the cross. He is the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And so they would witness to their friends, but also because they now have an understanding of these things. Because Scripture has now come to life in their hearts, and they know that it is not through the law that they are saved, it is through Christ that they are saved. And they understand why He came, the sacrifice that He made on the cross it gave new life to their worship. Now they could truly worship God because they knew his son, Jesus, who had died for their sins. And so they would come together and they would witness, but they would also congregate. But most of their 
time together was spent outside of the temple and outside of a place where they could gather in large groups. They were gathering in houses. The Bible talks about how they went from house to house. They had to do that because they didn't have a facility like this where they could all gather in one room and meet for an hour and then they could break off into classrooms and meet in small groups. They didn't have any of that. And so if they were going to gather together, most of the time it meant that they had to find smaller places, homes where they would congregate. And these believers were doing that. And so as they were congregating in these smaller settings, they are developing and growing relationships with one another in Christ. And in Acts chapter 2, it talks about that. It talks about how when they came together, they would eat together. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Amen. It talks about how they would fellowship with one another. Now, most of us, if you grew up in a Baptist world, a Baptist life, then the moment you think about fellowship, you think about eating. You think about potluck dinners. Can I get a witness? You know, we'd always have a fellowship at the church. There's going to be a fellowship at the church. You know what that meant. It meant that they were going to, the, the ladies in the church were going to prepare their best dishes and they were going to bring them and we all get to sample all these delicious meals and dishes that people had cooked in the church. Nothing wrong with that, but that's not what this word means. When it talks about fellowship here, it talks about sharing life together, life on life. And so they were not just eating together, but they were doing life together. They were sharing life together as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as, a, as members now of the same family, the family of God. And the Bible says they would minister to one another. If there was a need within the group, then there would be people step in to meet the need. And, and so they, they were constantly serving one another and ministering to one another. And they were diving down into the teaching of the apostles. They were continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And so the apostles were teaching the church, and these people were getting together, and they were talking about the teaching of the apostles. They were telling them what Jesus had taught them. And so they were getting together, and they were talking about that further. How does this, what does this mean? How does this apply to our life? How do, we, how do we live this out practically every day? They were talking about the teaching of the apostles, and they were encouraging one another as they were seeking to live out this mission that God had given them in the world. Because they understood that they were not still in the world for themselves. They were in the world to continue to serve Christ and to carry out his mission that he had given to them. And so they knew that they were going to need one another in order to do that successfully. And so for these believers, they understood that church was not an event. When many of us think of church, we think of just an event. We think about going to a service. But for them, that's not what church was. Church was an event. It wasn't just something on the weekly to-do list. It wasn't check the box, okay, done that. Church was family. It was being a part of a fellowship, a community of believers who were together pursuing a growing, deepening faith in Christ. For them, it meant building meaningful relationships with others who were committed to living for Christ and carrying out His mission in the world. And these believers would discover very soon just how important that fellowship and that community would be in their life as they sought to live for Christ in the world. And that brings us to Acts chapter 4. Flip over there, if you would. In just a moment, I'm going to read for you verses 23 through 31. We're going to walk through those verses together. But before we get there, let me just give you a little context here. On one of those trips to the temple, 
Peter and John one day encountered a man who was sitting there who was crippled and had been crippled since birth. When Peter and John walk by him, they look at him and they say, silver and gold we do not have to give you. But what we do have, we give to you in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Get up and walk. The man gets up and he begins to walk. And God took that miracle and he used it to draw a crowd. A crowd gathers around to see this miracle that had just happened because everyone was aware of this man. Anyone who had gone to the temple at all in Jerusalem had seen this man. He'd been there for years, waiting, begging. And now he's up on his feet and he's walking around. And people are gathering around trying to make sense of what has just happened. And Peter takes this opportunity to look at the crowd and say, listen, we didn't make this man walk. He's not walking because of our power in his life. He's walking today because of the power of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ in his life. And Peter began to explain what Jesus has done for this man outwardly in healing him and making him to walk. God wants to do in your life inwardly spiritually because you are all crippled by sin you are sinners and you need a savior and peter just began to explain the gospel again to the crowd that was gathered there and people were amazed and they were astonished by the things that peter was sharing with them and their hearts were being drawn to jesus and as all of that is going on the temple police show up and they're not pleased at all with what's happening and they arrest peter and john and they carry them off and it's late in the evening, so they don't do anything with them that night. They wait until the next day, and then they drag them in front of the Sanhedrin. They drag them in front of the religious leaders. And they begin to question them and interrogate them. And then they tell them, we don't want to hear any more about this Jesus. We don't want you talking about Jesus. We don't want you talking about this gospel that you're preaching. We don't want you talking about the resurrection. We don't want you to say another word about Jesus again, or there's going to be problems. You're going to have trouble. Let me ask you a question this morning. What would you do if you were in their position? If that was being said to you, don't talk about Jesus or else. You know, it's not a far-fetched question in our world today. What if your boss were to say to you, no more of this Jesus stuff? I, I don't want you saying anything else about Jesus while you're here on the clock. What if your teacher, your professor were to say to you, mm -mm, none of this Jesus stuff. I won't ever hear anything about Jesus in this classroom. What if the government were to come down on us all and were to say, uh-uh, no more talk of Jesus in the public arena. No more mention of Jesus anymore out there in the world. We don't want to hear anything about this Jesus again. What would you do with that? I mean, some of us, to some degree, are living at that place right now in our life. Because you may be employed by someone who's made it clear, mm -mm, don't, don't, don't you do any of this evangelizing, don't do any of this talking about Jesus while you're here in the workplace. That's forbidden. Some of you face that in the classroom. I get stories all the time about, about professors who say to students, listen, don't you talk about Jesus. And if you do, you're mocked and you're ridiculed, but they don't mind pushing their agenda on you. And so you feel like you're constantly being persecuted because of your faith in Christ. I hear stories about that. 
And it's not a far-fetched idea that one day we may be living in a land where that's the rule of the land. That's the law of the land now. No more talk about Jesus out here in society. No more talking about Jesus out there in the public square. What would you do with that if that were to happen to you? Well, look what Peter and John did. Peter looks at them and he says, hey, listen. Now, we respect authority because we understand that God has established authority in this world. And he's done it for our good. And so we acknowledge authority and we respect authority, but in this circumstance, in this case, we have no choice but to obey God and not man. Because God is the one who rules over us and God is the one that we ultimately answer to. And so we have no choice here but to obey God, not you. And we've been commanded by him to go and tell others of this good news. And by the way, Peter says, after what we've witnessed after what we've experienced, because we've been with the resurrected Christ, we've seen the resurrected Christ, we know that this stuff is true. After what we've seen and what we've experienced, we can't keep silent. We've got to tell people this good news. And after they said that, they were threatened again by the Sanhedrin, and then they were let go. Now, where do you think they went after they were let go? Well, the Bible doesn't say that they went and grabbed their passports and they fled to another country. It doesn't say that they went and huddled up somewhere trying to hide and figure out what to do next. The Bible says that Peter and John, once they were let go, in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4, they went and they found their companions. You know what that means? It means they went and they found their brothers and sisters in Christ. They went and found the church. They went to where believers were gathered together. And again, I believe that that was in a small setting. Oftentimes when we think about the church gathered and we're reading stuff like this in the New Testament, we're thinking about this setting, this kind of scene. But that's usually not where they gathered. They gathered in small places, small groups. And so they knew that there were believers in a certain location who had gathered together. Those believers uh, were obviously close to Peter and John. They knew them. They knew them well. These believers knew what was going on with Peter and John, and so the moment they were free, they went and they found those believers. And they began to share with them everything that had just happened. Now, let me ask you a question this morning. Where would you go? Again, if this were you, if this was your story, if this was happening to you, where would you go? When your faith is being challenged, when you're being put to the test, when you're in the midst of a trial, when the world is pressing down on you, when you are finding it very, very hard, very, very difficult to be a follower of Christ in this world, where would you go? Where would you turn? Truth is, most of us in this room would fall into one of three categories. There are some of us in this room that have no idea where to go. Because we can't think of right now who we would turn to in a moment like that. And the reason for that is because even though we have a lot of acquaintances in our life we have no real friends we have a lot of people that we know but very few people that we're doing life with i mean really doing life with we have a lot of surface conversations we can talk to a lot of people about nothing but as far as burying our soul as far as really opening up as far as really connecting with people talking with people we don't have anybody like that in our life I mean, it's like we're living on an island it's crazy, but we live in an epidemic of loneliness in our culture right now. We're surrounded by people everywhere, and yet there are people who feel so very lonely because they have no real friends in their life. 
And the truth is, there's probably somebody in this room who feels like that right now. There are others of us who would find ourselves turning to the world. Even though we're a follower of Christ, we would end up turning to the world because when you think about your closest friends in life, the people that you're closest to are people who are still lost, people who are still of this world. They don't share your faith in Christ. And it doesn't matter how well-intentioned they are or how much they say they love you and care about you, the only thing that a lost person can offer you is wisdom that is of this world because they know nothing of the wisdom of God. They don't turn to Scripture. They don't look to God's Word for for instruction in their own life. And certainly they're not going to look to God's Word to help you. The only thing they know is to look to the world or look within yourself, and there you find the answers. But you and I know that doesn't work. And yet that's the place that we turn. That's the place that we go to because that's the only people that we have in our life that we're really close to. What should be true of every one of us is that we would do what Peter and John did. That in a circumstance like this, in any circumstance in life, when in a crisis, when in need of help and support and encouragement in our life, we turn to the people who know God and love God and who love us. We turn to the church. We turn to other believers who are pursuing Christ and a deeper walk with Christ, just like we are. And that's what Peter and John did. Now, here's what's interesting about this, is that Peter and John were two key apostles in the early church. These were leaders within the early church. These weren't just some brand-new people introduced to the faith. These are people who had been walking with Jesus for years now, and now had been instructed to lead the church forward, carrying out God's mission in the world, and yet they found themselves under pressure here. And what do they do? They turn to the church. They turn to other believers. Because no matter how big of a backbone Peter had when he stood in front of the Sanhedrin and said, no, 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 we're not going to be silent. We're not going sh- to shut up. We're not going to quit talking about Jesus. No matter how strong he was in that moment and bold he was in his faith, you got to believe that when he walked out of that situation, Listen, there, there, there was some, some discouragement in his life as well. I mean, he realized that he is, he is in a world where there are going to be challenges, and these challenges aren't going away. And so he goes and he finds other believers with John. And the Bible says that when they went there and they found these believers, look at what they do. Acts chapter 4, verse uh, Verse 23. It says, and being let go, they went to their own companions, and they reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And so when they heard that, when these believers heard what Peter and John said, they raised their voice to God with one accord. That means they did it all together. They raised their voice to God. That, you, know, you know what it's talking about here? It's talking about prayer. So they, they, they turn to the church. They go to these brothers and sisters in Christ and say, okay, this is, what, this is, what, this is what's been said to us. And this is what's going on. This is what they're threatening us with. And instead of just sitting around and talking about it, okay, now what are we going to do? How are we going to handle this? What are we going to do to address this? The Bible says they heard what Peter and John said, and their initial response was to pray. Can I tell you, listen, when, when you turn to others in your life, even when you turn to Christians, when you turn to the church, 
We don't always have the answer. And we can't wave a magic wand and make all your problems go away in this life. There's no magical word or magical solution that anyone can offer you that makes all your troubles disappear. The Bible never says anything about that. The Bible never says that in this world, you and I are going to live a life of comfort and ease, that that, that we're not going to have any problems or any worries at all. Instead, the Bible is clear. Jesus told his disciples, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. In this world, as long as you're here, there are going to be trouble. And sometimes the trouble just lingers on. It just doesn't go away. And it's not as long as we're on this side of heaven. And so we may not have the answers. We may not have all the solutions, but we know the one who does. We know the one to whom we should turn. And that's what they do. They begin to pray. Listen, one of the greatest things that people can do for you in your life is to pray for you and to pray with you. To have people in your life who are there that when you call on them and you say to them, here's what I'm up against, here's what I'm dealing with, here's what I'm going through, their first response is, let's turn to God together. Let's pray through this. Let's pray about this. And that's what they did. The Bible says they raised their voice in one accord and they began to pray. And look at how they prayed. They said, Lord God, you are the one who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. So they don't just jump into prayer and start saying, okay, God, we need this, 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 and this. How many of you are guilty of doing that? And when you pray, the first thing you do is, God, Here's my list. I, I, got, I, I need help, and here's the ways that you can help me right now. That, that's usually the way we approach prayer. But that's not how they approach prayer. The first thing they did is they began to praise God. In their prayer, they acknowledged God as the source of all things. He is the one who created everything. Did you know that your God, my God, the God that we know, the God that we've gathered to worship this morning, is the God who, when there was nothing, spoke, and everything that is came into existence? There was nothing. And God said, let there be, and it be. Amen? It was. It just happened. I believe that with every ounce of my being. I believe it the way the Bible describes it. There was nothing. God spoke. There it is. Our God has that power. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing? That's your God. That's the God that you know. The God who has that kind of power. So don't you think that he can handle your stuff? Don't you think he can handle your problems, your situation? Of course he can. He's the almighty, he's the all-powerful, the omnipotent one. And they say, God, you're the one who created all things, and we know that. And not only that, we know that you're in control of all things. You're sovereign over all things. Look at how they pray. Who by the mouth, verse 25, of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage? The people plot vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. This is from the book of Psalms. So they're quoting scripture now. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. And so what they're talking about is the cross. And what happened? Here's in their prayer, they're saying this, God, this isn't the first time. This isn't the first time that men have stood against you. This is not the first time that the nations have come against you. It's not the first time that people have tried to push you out and reject you. 
This has been the story of history. It has happened time and time and time and time again. And the ultimate picture of that is what took place at the cross. Jesus came into the world to save, but the world didn't want a Savior. And so what they do? They nailed him to the cross. But what the, what the Christians are praying here is this. Is that every bit of that, everything that has happened in this world, even when men have stood against you, has all been a part of your predetermined plan. That you have purposed this from the very beginning. Listen to me. Adrian Rogers used to say that there has never been an emergency meeting in heaven. Do you know that? There's never been a moment where God has started wringing his hands and thought, what am I going to do now? Oh, I didn't see that coming. I didn't think that would happen. Never. There's never been an emergency meeting in heaven. It doesn't matter what's going on down here on earth. God has seen the end from the beginning. God knows everything. And everything that happens ultimately will fulfill his sovereign will. That there's no question about the outcome. There's no question about how this plays out. It doesn't matter how much the world stands against the church. The church will stand because it belongs to him. It's his church. It's not our church. It belongs to him. And so he is going to fulfill his purpose through his people. And so you don't have to worry about the threats. And you don't have to worry about the opposition. You don't have to worry about what the nations do or what the political leaders do or what this agenda or that agenda does. Because God's in control of everything. And so they acknowledge that, God, you're the one that's in control. We know that. We know that we're on the winning side. We know that your will will always be accomplished no matter what. And so therefore, because we know these things, here's what we're asking for. Look at what they asked for. He says, now, Lord, look on their threats, verse 25, and grant to your ser- or verse 29, grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. And notice what they didn't pray. God, take away all of our problems. God, make this all go away. Make life all better. That's not what they prayed. Because they again realized that as long as you're in this world, there's going to be opposition. If you're a follower of Christ, you're always going to feel like a stranger and an alien in this world. The Bible says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It didn't say most. It didn't say those who live in third world countries. But if you're in the western world, then you're exempt. It says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's just kind of catching up with us. We're beginning to feel it a little bit more, perhaps. It's becoming a little bit more intense. But this is the world that we live in. There's going to be opposition to our faith in Christ. There's going to be opposition to the mission that we have been given. And so what they prayed for is this. God, just give us boldness. Give us the courage that we need to be able to stand in the face of this opposition. Help us to continue to be your people and to do your will no matter what the challenges may be that come against us. No matter what the opposition may throw at us, help us to speak your word with boldness. That's what we need to pray for. We need to pray for boldness. And not only that, they prayed also that he would stretch out his hand, verse 30. And that he would heal and that, that, 
that he would do signs and wonders through the name of his holy servant, Jesus, that he would use them to bring about these things. Now, understand that the apostles lived at a time where God was continuing to work through them in a very supernatural, very unique way. And so he would do signs and wonders and miracles through them as a means of of validating their ministry, of saying to the world who was looking on these men, talking about this resurrection and talking about Jesus, listen to these men, these men represent me, these are my ambassadors. The power of God was on their life. And so they were praying, God, you just continue to demonstrate your power that the world will know that we speak the truth and that we are your servants. And there's nothing wrong with praying that even today, that God, you would demonstrate your power in your church and that we would proclaim your truth and that the world would know that we speak what is true. But listen, what we need to understand is that the miracles that we should be looking for are not healings and this and that. The greatest miracle there is in all of the world is when God changes a life. It's salvation. Sometimes that gets missed, even in the church. We look for all these other things. We're looking for all these other signs and wonders, and we miss out on what is the greatest miracle of all, and that is when somebody is born again. That's what the Bible says. When you come to faith in Christ, you are born again. It's like you're made brand new. The Bible says that a person who comes to faith in Christ, it's like someone dead being raised to life. That's miraculous. And we were all once there. I don't care what your story may be. I don't care where you come from, what your testimony is this morning. If you know Jesus, your story involves the greatest miracle in all of the world because you were once a sinner dead in your sins, and God made you alive through His Son, Jesus Christ. Whether that happened out there while you were in the world living a a rebellious life, doing all kinds of wicked and awful things, or whether you were sitting in a church pew most of your life and not guilty of what many people in the world are guilty of, but one day you recognize that religion doesn't do it for me. Religion can't get me to God. That even though I go to church every week, I still feel lost. I I still feel disconnected. And the reason you feel that way is because you're dead. But then Jesus made you alive. And that's miraculous. And so we should pray. We should pray, God, give us the boldness to keep speaking your word, to live as your people ought to live in this world, and to continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And God, as we proclaim the gospel, keep demonstrating your power by saving those who hear the gospel and bringing them to faith in Christ. That was their prayer. And then look what happened as a result of it. As they prayed this thing, these things, the Bible says in verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. Which means, listen, these believers gathered in prayer, experienced, literally experienced the presence of God in their midst. When he talks, I mean, the place that they were, they were meeting together was shaken. I mean, it just, it, it means that God was with them. God was there. And I would tell you something, listen, listen. God is with us. But one of the ways in which we experience and feel the presence of God, perhaps like no other, is when believers are together and they're praying. I mean, genuinely just praying. 
just crying out to God, pouring out their hearts to God. God meets with us in those places. God manifests His presence in those places. What a beautiful thing for believers to be together with other believers, opening their lives and sharing with one another their burdens and their struggles and turning to the God of heaven and crying out to Him and then to experience the presence of God coming down on them. They felt that. But not only did they feel the presence of God, the Bible says they were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit came and filled them. Now listen, if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes with faith. When you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you receive the Spirit of God. But though every believer has the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God doesn't necessarily have every believer because sometimes we get filled with other stuff so that we quench the Spirit in our life. We get filled with fear. We get filled with doubt. We get filled with discouragement. Sometimes we get filled with the world again. We get filled up with sin. And so we can't feel the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life because we're quenching the Spirit. But when you empty yourself of all of those other things so that the Spirit of God can fill you, then it becomes no longer you who live. It becomes Christ who's living in you and Christ who's living through you, which is the desire and the goal of every believer, that it's not I who live any longer. It's Christ who lives in me, Christ who's living through me. And so these believers were praying together. They were turning to God, and they were casting their cares upon Him, knowing that He cares for them. And as a result of that, they were being filled with the Spirit of God. And so as a result of that, the Bible says they began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Which means they continued to go out into the world and they continued to pro proclaim the gospel. They continued to preach Christ. And what happened as a result of that? Well, read the book of Acts. The church just continues to explode. And it doesn't explode because, because all the laws were changed and there was an election and a, and, a, and, a, and a new leader came over the land and he made laws that were just uh, in favor of Christians and it allowed all this stuff to happen. That's not why it happened. Listen, the church exploded in the face of great persecution in the midst of tremendous opposition. All these challenges didn't go away. They intensified as you read on in the book of Acts. And yet the church exploded as a result of these believers being filled with the Spirit of God and preaching and proclaiming the Word of God with boldness. Now, I'll tell you something. Listen, it's in the Bible. I believe it. And I believe God's the same today as He was yesterday. And I believe He can do the same thing in our world that He did back then. But this kind of stuff happens when believers are together in the context of Christian community because the reason why they found such courage and such boldness, the reason why they had this strength about them in the face of great challenges and opposition is because they were together. And they were pursuing God together, this deeper relationship with the Lord. I'll tell you, listen. There's never been a time in history when Christians haven't needed the church. There's never been, never been a time when the church has been unimportant in the life of a follower of Christ. But in our world where we live right now, 
The need for the church, the need for community, the need for fellowship with other believers who are passionately pursuing a deeper walk with Christ has never been more important as it is right now. Because I don't know whether you read the headlines or watch the news, but I'll tell you something. We live in a world that has gone absolutely berserk. And we as followers of Jesus now who believe the Bible and believe that Jesus is the only way, He's the way of salvation. We are in the minority. And you've got these people in the world today who are doing everything they can. They see the biggest threat to their agenda. They've got an agenda, and the biggest threat to their agenda are people like you and me who believe the Bible is the Word of God and who believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so they're going to do everything they can to silence you so that the only voice that's being heard is their voice. And it's not just that they want their voice heard. They don't just want you to hear what they're saying. They want you to believe what they're saying. And if you don't, you're an enemy. This is the world you live in today. This is your world. This is my world. And it's not going away. This is not going to change. This is, this is, this is it. There's not an election that's going to happen that's going to change all of that. Because our issues in America are not political. Our issues are moral and they are spiritual. And the only one who can help us is Jesus Christ. The world needs the church. The world needs the church to be the church. The kind of church that we see in the book of Acts. But if we're going to be that church, we have to understand that we need each other too. So a couple of takeaways, and then I'm going to pray. I'm just going to mention these, and then I'll pray. Takeaway number one is that every believer needs community and fellowship with other believers. You should not see involvement in the church as just being a member of the church. You're called to be an active participant in the church, engaging in fellowship and in community with other believers. You're not going to grow the way you should. You're not going to be able to face the challenges that we're going to face as believers in this world if you're not connected in community with other faithful believers. It's just not going to happen. It didn't happen back then. It's not going to happen today. We need each other. We just all might as well admit that. Don't sit here this morning and say, nah, you're talking to some of these other folks, but you're not talking to me. I'm talking to all of us. We all need this. Every one of us. From the top all the way down, we need fellowship and community and relationships with other believers. We need it. The other thing is this, that community is best discovered and relationships are best formed in small groups. What happens in this room is wonderful. I'm thankful to God for the times that we gather in a large setting and we're able just to open God's Word and sing praises to Him and and, and hear from the Lord a word to challenge us and convict us and encourage us and change us. But, but listen, if this is your whole experience, if this is all it is for you, there's so much that you're missing out on and so much more that you need. Because you can sit in this room right now with all these people around you and still be lonely in life. You need community. You need fellowship with other believers. And that best happens in small groups. For us, one of the best small group opportunities that we have as a church right now is what we call life groups that meet on Sunday mornings where believers get together in small groups. And here's what we're discovering. 
And we've known this for a while, but this is going to become glaringly obvious, I hope, to all of us in the days to come, is that if we're going to be a church that is committed to helping people connect, we've got to create as many on-ramps to connection as we possibly can. And our current setting does not afford us that opportunity. And so there are things that we're going to have to do that changes how we approach community life because we need to create as many on-ramps as possible for people to get connected with one another outside of this room to build relationships because we believe it's essential to your spiritual growth to our spiritual growth and maturity as followers of christ and so we just need to buckle up embrace ourselves for that but that's part of being a missional church understanding what god has called us to be and how he's called us to make disciples and then committing ourselves to do it whatever that takes whatever that means for us and we hope to flesh that out more in the weeks to come but god help us to be a place where people not only can come and believe in jesus christ but people can come and connect with other believers to find encouragement and help and support people they can do life with as they seek to live out their faith in Jesus Christ in this world. If you were encouraged by today's sermon, leave us a rating and subscribe to the podcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church Martin, visit fpcmartin.org.